You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Who the heck calls themselves Grumpus Maximus, and how do we make talking about pension plans exciting? Today, we're going to earn and invest in learning about the defined benefit program. It may sound dry, but Grumpus is going to talk to us about military service, his one no-shitter moment, and being on drug raids. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. It's a heck of an episode. It was a fairly casual conversation that kept on coming up between my wife and I. It went something like this. She would take a look at our financials and say, hmm, maybe it's time to consider retiring. And I'd look at her and say, oh, that that would be nice. And then she'd say, yeah, but you know, I got these stock options and they vest over five years. And so if I go now, I'm going to have to give up most of those options because they have invested. And of course, there's healthcare, right? We have a great healthcare policy, and then we're going to have to go out and buy our own healthcare. And we had this conversation over and over again. And I had heard of this idea of golden handcuffs, right? The things that companies put out there that keep you in a job. And I thought that was uniquely a situation my wife was dealing with. But in a sense, I had formed my own self-imposed golden handcuffs too. You see, I was a physician and I was working for myself and I ended up having a high wage or I was a high wage earner. But then every year it got harder and harder to leave, even though we were financially stable, even though I had learned about financial independence and realized that I didn't have to work anymore. It was still hard to walk away from that salary. I had imposed my own set of golden handcuffs that were keeping me in place. Now, most of us have heard of this concept, this idea of golden handcuffs. On the other hand, most of us have not heard of something called the golden albatross. We are going to talk about that today, and to do that, I'm going to introduce Grumpus Maximus. He not only has one of the most colorful names in personal finance, he is also the go-to guy when it comes to discussing pensions. His recent book, The Golden Albatross, just dropped. Grumpus, good to catch up with you, man. How you been doing? Good, Doc G. Thanks for having me. I'm going to jump into the heart of this. Tell me about your one no-shitter moment and a guy named Bob. So my one no-shitter moment happened, I think, around year 12 or 13 of my military career, and I was in charge of a unit that attached people to 
other units out in the field that would go and conduct drug interdiction missions. And we were all out of people. It was me and Bob left in the office when the call came down from our higher headquarters to go out and support a mission. I had had the, all the training and had been in the field multiple times just to relieve some of my people and take some of the workload off their shoulders, but Bob had not. He was only trained with combat training, not with kind of the specialized training we needed. But I took him anyways because an extra set of hands and eyes always helps. And the unit we attached with, we did the interdiction, ended up finding the drugs, but the the mission itself went really, really wrong right as we discovered the drugs. And uh, the drug runners managed to get away from the unit we were working with and uh, set the whole structure we were in and around on fire. And I thought Bob was in one of the structures when it went up in flames. And I was standing at the doorway, yelling his name, trying to figure out what I was gonna do because obviously he was my responsibility. And I brought him on this mission and I told him to keep his eyes open and mouth shut. So he was my responsibility to take care of and I wasn't coming home without him. And so, Right before I decided that I was going to go through that doorway and go looking for him in this structure that was on fire, I heard him shouting my name from behind with the rest of the unit who had bugged out to a fallback position. And he fortunately, that saved me from going into a smoke-filled structure that I probably would have succumbed to smoke inhalation in while thinking that I was going in to save him. And that that thought process became the basis of what I call the worth versus worth it decision for me. It's a, it's a story I use to teach people who read my book and read the blog about how something has value on one hand, i.e. the drugs that we were interdicting and that was now on fire versus other things that are oftentimes invaluable or more, it's more of a morals and a, ethical value that you place on something like someone's life. And so in that moment, was it worth it to go into the structure to save Bob from my moral, my own personal values? Yes, it was. Now, was it worth dying over those drugs, especially since, you know, places like Afghanistan and Pakistan are so awash in them? No, it wasn't. So that is, that is my story, my one no shitter about Bob and me and how I learned firsthand what worth versus worth it can really mean to somebody and how that can affect you mentally down the road as well. You were in the military at the time. Let's talk about how this episode leads to you writing a book about defined benefit pensions. There's a definite connection I get after reading your book. How does one lead to the other? One leads to the other by kind of just what I mentioned is there was some mental impact there post-mission to me, maybe to other members of the team we were attached to, and possibly to Bob, but he was younger than me. He did have kids, but he was younger than me and kind of more mentally resilient. But, you know, I'd been through 12 to 13 years of stress in the military already. Fast forward, I think, three, three and a half years from that point, and I was supposed to deploy to Afghanistan. 
and my wife miscarried the night before I was supposed to deploy, or we, we discovered my wife miscarried the night before I was supposed to deploy. So that combined with, and, and I guess the other part is I ultimately deployed only a week later. The mental impact of that with the mission that I previously mentioned ended up me being di diagnosed with post-traumatic stress by the time I was diagnosed, I was only three years away from vesting in my military pension. But in the meantime, I really wanted to leave the military. By the time my mental world came crashing down and my emotional world came crashing down around me, I didn't know if I could go another day, let alone three more years in order to, to vest in, in the pension. If you know anything about the military uh, pension system is you still vest at a cliff vest. So that means if you leave before the 20 years, you don't get anything. If you stay beyond it, you, you do. And for the military, that includes health care, along with the payments that they're going to make to you for the rest of your life as part of the defined benefit pension. And so that was a big decision that I had to make. And I didn't have really great tools to make it with. Uh, because I didn't necessarily know how to value my pension on one hand. And of course, I was going through all the mental health treatment for the first time in my life. And so I was trying to navigate two different, extremely complicated things at one time. And that, that I, I, I ultimately was successful in being able to, to navigate the part about valuing the pension. The mental health obviously has taken a lot longer. But I had to teach myself basically all, all the things that I needed to know about how to value a pension in the future, how to value the health care attached to it. And if you can imagine trying to do that while you're also going through the uh, mental health system, life got really complicated. And for a while there, I didn't, you know, I, again, I didn't know if I was going to stay or not. But once I finally figured it all out and I could see everything in black and white on a piece of paper, as far as the value of my pension, so the worth of my pension, I had to make a worth or worth a decision there about, hey, is is this pension, is the, the amount of money I'm going to get and or the, the amount of medical lifetime worth of medical treatment I'm going to get, is it going to be worth it versus possibly, you know, staying around for three years and possibly injuring myself from, mentally even more? from the stress that, that my job just naturally carries. I didn't necessarily have to deploy again, but I certainly was going to go into other stressful jobs. And if you know anything about PTS, no stress is good stress by the time you, you know, you've been diagnosed and you're working through it. So I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it, but I ultimately decided to stay because of the value of the money that was going to be paid out to me as well as the value of the healthcare. I knew I was taking a chance of uh, further mental injury, but, you know, for the good of my family, for the good of our future together, I decided to stay. That decision was made somewhat easier by the fact that I was also trying to, or I was also in the middle of educating myself financially and had discovered financial independence only just serendipitously right around the same time I had this, this mental breakdown and was diagnosed with PTS. So 
when I reframed the, the issue of me staying for the pension into an issue of not only staying for the pension, but being able to set myself up for financial independence, it made my decision a lot easier from the emotional side as well as from the fiscal side. It just, it all kind of fell into place and it all made sense. You know, the only problem was, was the stress side the you know, the, the, the further mental damage I might be causing myself. And again, that, that was a values decision on my part. And I fully admit that maybe I made the wrong call from a mental health perspective, but I think I made the right call as far as the security of my family goes, the security financial security for the rest of our life. And, and so I have experienced firsthand, I call it the golden albatross moment. You, you referred to the golden handcuffs earlier, but that is what the golden albatross moment is, as I, as I have defined it via the metaphor that I use, this stay or go decision that many pensionable workers face at some point in their career most likely before they vested or fully vested in their pension and whether or not they think they can stick it out in order to vest in that pension. So let's unpack this a little bit. First of all, you started with the term PTS, that's post-traumatic stress. And certainly that episode with Bob in the burning building was the start at least or the continuance of stress that was building up that eventually led to what you've called a mental breakdown. We tend to think of money and finances and certainly pensions as numbers issues, right? We talk about the value of the money you'll get by sticking out the pension or not. Was it hard to frame this discussion for you in mental health? Was it difficult to write about maybe things that almost felt like shortcomings to you in the book was it hard to have that discussion? Yes. You know, the short answer is yes. You know, I do write under a pseudonym. It makes it easier. But even then, as far as framing the discussion for the reader goes, it's hard to explain just how much I was mentally melting down during this entire episode. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress caused by a couple of events that I mentioned that manifested itself in depression and anxiety, which is fairly common diagnosis. But those are, those are two different things, you know, anxiety in its worst forms, you know, it, 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 it just leads to excessive worrying the, the body's natural reaction or the brain's natural reaction to anxiety is to worry. And that doesn't solve anything. It just makes you actually technically it makes you more incapable of solving your problems if you can't get a handle on it. And then on the other side, the depression side, you know, the majority of my depression manifested as anger. And that's ultimately what made me uh, seek mental help. It's because my anger had just become uncontrollable. It was impacting obviously me, but also my family. So to try and describe that in the book and just convey the seriousness of what I was going through as well as trying to assume, maybe maybe assume is the wrong word, but also trying to kind of capture the fact 
that I know a lot of other pensionable jobs uh, carry the same amount of stress and the same amount of exposure to potentially uh, harmful things like I had been through. And that's not just the military. You know, that's firefighters or first responders. Sometimes it's teachers, you know, all these jobs that carry this kind of this load of stress. It's, It's hard to kind of convey that all effectively in order to to set that values versus uh, value decision. So, you know, your personal values on one hand, the value of your pension on the other, you know, what I call the worth versus worth it decision. It didn't necessarily come easily, but uh, hopefully in the book, I think I framed it well enough for, for many people to get the point. And, and to be honest, ever since I started the blog is, it's, it's been a little bit surprising just how many people say, yes, that is exactly what I went through or that is exactly what I'm going through now. Uh, this, this golden albatross moment, as you describe it, I just don't know if, how to do any of this. Uh, and I don't know if this is worth it as far as the job goes. So that's, that's why I use the metaphor because it helps frame, frame the issue better. But yeah, it was hard to make, make that an effective or frame that that issue effectively for the book. And that anger you mentioned that caused you to get counseling was the origin of your moniker, Grumpus Maximus, I assume. Uh, <laughs> actually, no. So that is a name I, my brother and my wife came up with when I was on deployment one time. I don't even think it was the deployment where I was nearly killed. It was one of my previous deployments. I came home. They They were roommates at the time. Because my brother, who's also in the military, he was on a different deployment cycle than me and training cycle. So it just made sense that he would, you know, move into my my house and take care of my wife. Or not that she needs taken care of, but, you know, help out. So I came home. It was a particularly stressful time in my life. I was probably permanently grumpy throughout that time, through all the training for that deployment. I certainly was. And I came home. They had given me that moniker. And they'd gotten even like a coffee cup with it on there <laughs> because because of that. So, you know, it just became a natural pseudonym for me to use. And, and like you said, it's pretty memorable. So it's, it's, I guess it's brand recognition, if nothing else. And you'd mentioned earlier financial independence. In some ways, that ended up being a lifeline for you at this difficult time. Is that correct? Absolutely. That is correct. And, and I discuss that in the book because I have a chapter basically on the anxiety I went through, and then I have a chapter based on the depression I went through uh, and how they all kind of played together in this golden Albus trust moment for me. But certainly the FI lifeline, so the financial independence lifeline, really helps dampen down quite a bit my anxiety because when I was going through you know, this this episode, this mental breakdown, Part of the the cause of that was this unrealistic anxiety I was placing on myself. So I was sitting there worrying about my future. What would I do even if I stayed for the pension? Because everybody that I knew, so my you know my self limiting belief was I had to go out and get a second job, even if I stayed for the pension. Every everybody who gets out of the military at, at my age ends up going back to work and needs a second job. That was a self-limiting belief that Phi helped me reframe and, and realize that, no, I, I didn't need to go and get a second job. Technically, the math says that 
my wife and I have saved so much, plus with, you know, the pension rolling in, we could live a lifestyle and take care of our two kids very much the same level as we could being in the military. That, that did more to solve my anxiety than any, you know, amount of medication or therapy, talk therapy that I was going through at the time. And to say it's solved, it's, it's not solved, but it, it dampens down that anxiety quite a bit. Let's get a little more granular with the book and its contents. When we talk about a pension, we're really talking about a defined benefit plan. And that's in contrast to a defined contribution plan, something like a 401k. Why do defined benefit plans cause all these issues? The main issue is it provides security or it is meant to provide security. It provides you a, you know, a certain amount of payments for the rest of your retired life whenever those payments start. And as a result, people are drawn to that security. Uh, now, it might be certain types of people are drawn more than others. I haven't really researched that aspect of, of pensions just yet, but they certainly give people a reason to stay. And some people are attracted to that reason more than others. The downside is you have to stay and work within that system in order to vest for a certain number of years. Uh, most pensions don't vest early, or at least they certainly don't fully vest early. And as a re- and that's by design, right? That's by design. It, it's for these jobs where you want to keep people around for long lengths of time, doing the same thing or, or moving up through the system and and being that experienced person that either the company or the you know government organization that you're working for wants you to be. The problem for companies and even governments nowadays is that is a terribly expensive way of compensating someone in retirement, which you already mentioned, the defined contribution system. You know, pensions in the U.S., at least defined benefit pensions, have been slowly fading away over the last several decades, whereas, you know, over 30 percent, I think it was 39 percent as late as 1988 or 89 you know, that's down, that was down below 13% as of 2016. So that statistic alone is for corporate America. It doesn't even include, you know, the government, uh, the public pension side of things. But no matter what, either in the corporate world or in the public service world, the pension is there. It's designed to make people stick around. The only problem is some, some pensions aren't going to be there after you stick around or at least they're not going to be there in their fully uh, pledged form because a lot of are going through, you know, a fiscal safety issue in as much as they have way too many obligations and not enough money to pay out all those obligations. Yeah, quite a bummer if you do what you were talking about, which is gut it out, stick it out and get the pension and then the pension disappears because of fiscal problems. You're bumming, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it does beg the question, which I have fielded, you know, more than once on, can you be truly financially independent if you're relying on a pension in your retirement? So one of the things that 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 is one of the reasons I wrote the book, because that's a great question, right? And and it turns out that not all pensions are the same. Every single pension is a little bit different as much as the pension system that a worker is working in or working for. 
some some pensions you can rely on to be there and some you can absolutely not rely on to be there. And there is a whole spectrum in between, the majority of which will be there uh, for people or be there in some form. It may not be the exact form that was promised to them while they were working, but certainly you have both extremes and you always hear about the, the negative extreme in the media, but you don't always, you, you hardly ever hear about the positive end or extreme of that bell curve of there are many pensions that will be there for people like a federal pension for one, like a U.S. federal pension like mine from the military. That's not going anywhere. America always pays its debts, be that good or bad or otherwise. So you can rely on that versus somewhere like uh, a state pension system in Illinois. Many of the uh, state pension systems for Illinois are in major trouble. In fact, there's only one that's not in major trouble. So, you know, that there's a difference there. There's a qualitative difference there of the type of pension you're working for, be it with like all the perks or how they calculate the value of that pension. But there's also a qualitative difference there on the pension safety side, which is important to define which, which kind of pension you have. Is it, do you have one that's safe, relatively safe, or do you have one that even though it provides lots of perks, it isn't, it isn't fiscally safe at all. And you talk about that in more detail in the book. I want to speak about a fundamental topic in the book about the naming of it. You call it the golden albatross, this phenomena. We've mentioned golden handcuffs before. Why does the term golden handcuffs not exactly fit what you are facing and why golden albatross does better? So, you know, I tell the, the story in the book, it's somewhat funny, somewhat sad that I was helping a friend go through the same thing I went through approximately a year after I'd been through it. She, she wasn't in the military, but she works for an organization much like the military that provides a pension after a certain number of years. And we were throwing around this term as I was helping her called the golden handcuffs because that's what we thought it meant. But then when I started the blog and she was the one who actually encouraged me to start the blog, I actually, you know, Google golden handcuffs just to make sure I was using it correctly. And it turns out that at least the Investopedia definition of golden handcuffs, or maybe it's Wikipedia, I can't remember which, but either way, the definition is it's for executives, right? It's for, it, it's for the situation you mentioned with your wife and these stock options, right? That, that is really what the golden handcuffs was meant to define is that, you know, you have these, these people high up in these companies who are given these large compensation packages, uh, but only after you've worked a certain number of years there. And it's, you know, again, it's meant to make people stick around. Maybe that job is harder than others, or maybe there's some unsavory part of that job that means a lot of people leave or, or whatever it is. Golden handcuffs wasn't quite right for the situation my, my friend and I were in because we weren't executives. You know, we weren't, we weren't decision makers in our organizations. We were workers in our organizations. You know, we were middle management at best. And so I had to come up with this term for this situation uh, that I just, you know, described earlier to you. Golden handcuffs wasn't quite right. So I had to go away and think and do some research on it and you know, I'm a big sci-fi fan. I'm kind of a fanboy in my spare time. 
was racking my brain about trying to think about this situation. And if you know anything about Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, there's this sailor out in this poem that, you know, he kills an albatross and the albatross was a sign of good luck for sailors. So as punishment, the gods of the sea cause his ship to almost shipwreck and then his shipmates figure out that he's the cause of the issue. They they hang this albatross around him to make him atone for the sins that displeased all, all the sea gods. So that that poem is referred to in Serenity, the movie. So if, if you're a sci-fi nerd like me, you've seen that scene, you're trying to come up, you know, and this, this pension feels like this albatross hung around your neck and, and metaphorically. But at the end of it, do get this golden prize, much like the golden handcuffs. So I kind of combine my love of that scene uh, of the movie with this idea that much like the golden handcuffs, you have this albatross around your neck, but it's gold. So it's that the weight of that albatross is actually even more weighty than it otherwise would be, again, to kind of symbolize this, this struggle that people go through. And it, it is a fun way of describing it, what could otherwise be a, a rather something of a downer uh, to talk about, right? So as we talk about pensions, we really talk about this worth versus worth it equation. Is the worth, the value of your pension, worth gutting it out or sticking it out in order to get that gold at the end of the golden albatross or the golden handcuffs? We've talked a lot about the emotional side, especially for you with mental health, but there's also a very mathematical side to this equation. Is the math difficult? Is it complicated to understand how much your pension is actually worth? Depends on your pension. Some are easier than others. There there are definite ways you can figure out the value. All of it has a little bit of guesswork in there because you have to guess things like lifespan expectations and inflation rates. But at the end of the day, some some pensions are easier to value than others, but all can be valued to some extent fairly accurately. I, you know, I do touch upon in the book that some of these numbers are a little bit mathematical versus mathematical. But at the end of the day, you can get a, a good rough order of magnitude, or at least I believe you can, for your pension to actually, you know, and the math will, will help you get there. In the book, I provide all the equations that, that I have come up with or people who have, have helped me come up with. But at the end of the day, strangely enough, there's no one correct method for calculating the value of a pension. There are multiple methods you can use. They will all give you a different number at the end of it. You know, my way that I use in the book is the way I prefer to do it is to calculate what all the future payments would equal and then adjust that for inflation. Other methods for valuing pensions, I use like the time time value of money theory, you know, future value versus present value. All. So there are multiple ways you can do it. Mine is but one way. At, at the end of the day, I don't care which way a person uses. I just want them to apply some rigor to their decision. And that is, you know, one of the fundamental principles of this book is that your decision to stay or go doesn't need to be set or run through a black box of, of murky emotions on one hand and incomprehensible math maybe on the other. So 
while I provide a system for valuing the pension, you know, with getting a money number out of out of what you think your pension is worth, I also give people, you know, a more just kind of fact-based method as well, where they can compare like how how strong their pull of the issues that are pulling them away, making them think of leaving are versus kind of these categorically five or six valuable things that some pensions have. And therefore, even if they're not into the math, they can still say, hey, I have a valuable pension or I have a, a really valuable pension because it's got, it ticks all these boxes that Grump has laid out versus one that only ticks one or two boxes. So there, you know, I provide two different kind of fact-based ways to, to come up with an assessment of how valuable your pension really is. I prefer, personally, my personality, the way it is, prefers the numbers method. But I fully recognize that, that many people don't. And, and so, even if you don't want to come up with a future dollar value or present va- dollar value of what you think your pension uh, is, you can still come up with, or you can still use this list of, you know, five or six things and, and find, discover whether or not you have a valuable pension. Of course, valuable is relative in both those terms because it, it's not really about what the pension will pay you. It's about what the pension will enable you to do in retirement, right? And I do touch upon that in my book. You know, for me, what the pension was going to do for us, I kind of already mentioned, was it's going to provide security and stability for my family and still allow us to live a really great lifestyle, one that we have become accustomed to, it was going to help enable that to happen. For other people, that there's other things that they're going to use that money for. And again, that's, that's a values-based decision versus a value decision. In the first half of the show, we talk with Grumpus about the worth versus worth it equation. After the break, we'll discuss how the framework for the Golden Albatross may have changed his original decision of whether to leave his job in the military or not. But first, this episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, Purposeful cockpit-like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Wish you were in early on some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. 
Our crowd's investment professionals leverage their extensive network to review some of the most promising private companies and startups in the world. Their in-depth due diligence includes meeting with management teams and generally comprehensive vetting of deals they decide to make part of their own portfolio. Once our crowd has selected a deal, they offer accredited investors the opportunity to invest alongside them with the same terms. If you're an accredited investor, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com/eai and review the current deals. No payment is involved until you decide to participate in a deal. As you review deals, you have access to our crowd's investor relations team, who you can talk to directly on the phone about your personal investment goals. The investment professionals at our crowd have already reviewed thousands of companies, invested hundreds of millions of dollars, closed investments in over 200 companies, and chosen dozens of companies that have made exits. Accredited investors can participate in single company deals for as little as $10,000 or one of our crowd's funds for as little as $50,000. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Memic. Memic explains that their tiny robotics allow surgeons to be less invasive and safely perform gynecologic surgeries so women heal faster and have less scarring. Memic is a much needed innovation in the rapidly growing multi billion dollar robotic surgery market. You can get in early on Memic and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join our crowd. The R Crowd account is free. Just go to OURCROWD.com slash EAI. So the Golden Albatross is really a decision framework for making these type of difficult life changing and life-altering decisions on whether to continue a job with a job or not based on whether a defined benefit plan has vested. I'm not going to go into all the details. You, of course, can read the book yourself to get those. But let me ask you this question, Grumpus. If you had this book in front of you in 2016 when you were going through the worst struggles with PTS, would your decision been different than what you ultimately did? Ooh, that's a good one. I, I thought you were going to ask me if, if I thought it would be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> would it have been different? Possibly. You know, I do say in the book that in hindsight, I may have made a mistake because I, I don't think I realized the full extent of the, the mental damage I had taken at the time. And I thought gutting it out for those last three years would be easier than it actually turned out to be. If I had had a book like that was basically telling me you need to think long and hard about something like this and here, here's a method for, for doing that, it, it's very possible I may have come up with a different decision. Now, now that I'm on the other side of retirement, though, it, it certainly is nice to have the stability that that pension provides. But even now in, in learning just how dehabilitating the stress can be, just normal life stress can be for me versus, you know, the amount of stress I was taking in the military. So, so at the end of the day, yes, I very possibly could have come up with a different decision that would have required a completely different plan than the one I'm on now. But if I had had a book laying it out for me in black and white very very well could have come up with a different different decision 
It's an interesting question because the legendary Doug Nordman wrote the intro to your book, Doug from the Military Guide, and he suggests in his introduction that maybe he gutted it out a little too long also. It begs the question whether people in this situation generally make the right decision. And it sounds like, especially maybe when it comes to the military, if they're feeling that psychological stress, a lot of people do not make the right decision. A lot of people have trouble leaving. Yeah, so Doug is, he's my blogging mentor. He's a good friend. And he is fairly avid about the fact that people should leave the military when they think it's time versus hanging around for the pension based on his, his experience. Turns out, you know, he and his wife would have been financially independent without, without the pension, but he didn't know it at the time or he didn't, he didn't pause long enough to figure it out because his career field was just too stressful and too time consuming. So he just operated off the, the principle or, or the idea that my family will be secure if I earn this pension. And, and he said, lays all this kind of out briefly in the forward for this book is like, hey, at the end of the day, when I got on the other side of my retirement and had time to think and analyze the situation, turns out I didn't need to stay. And we have way overshot our financial independence number. Now, I will juxtapose that with the fact that only 20% of the people who join the military end up sticking around for the pension. It's an all, at least the U.S. military. So, you know, it's an all-volunteer force. People come and go all the time. But there are certainly a percentage of those 20% that stay. So a smaller percentage of those 20% that stay don't need the pension. That wasn't necessarily the case. In my case, I would have had to get another job. But Doug is adamant, like, hey, if that's what you have to do, you know, to, be, to live a better life, then that's what you should do. So Doug is very much in the camp that you should leave no matter when that time comes for you. Once you no longer want to be in the military, you should leave. I counsel more caution, mostly because a lot of people aren't going to be financially independent if they don't stick around for the pension. And that is certainly kind of the truth on the enlisted side more than the officer side, but, but it's true kind of generally as well on both sides. It really does make very clear this idea that not only do you have to understand the analytical side of valuing your own pension, not only do you have to understand your emotional response to what you're going through, but you also have to have a pretty clear-eyed view of what your own personal finances are and future goals that unless you can define those future goals and define what you're going to need in the future, it's a one-sided calculation without that information. Valuing your pension will only get you so far if you don't know what to do with that afterwards. Absolutely. You're right. So this is part of the book that actually got better after I approached Choose FI, Choose Financial Independence, the publishing company, to, to publish my book. They, they asked me to go back and kind of expand out the reason uh, why I stayed and, and things like that, you know, my why of five, because they're big on that, that term, right? What's your why for five? So I chose to stay because it was going to do something else for me. I think by that time in my life, again, I'd been on kind of this parallel journey of financial independence discovery. I could clearly state why staying uh, or what staying for the pension would be able to do, what the pension would enable us to do. Not a lot of people can do that 
because they haven't mostly because they just haven't sat down and seriously thought about that. But you, in order to navigate the golden albatross in the best manner possible, you absolutely do need to sit down and determine what that is. Some people ask me like, Hey, are you pro pension or anti pension? I'm neither. The only thing I am pro well-informed decision, right? You should make a well-informed decision about staying or leaving a pensionable job. What your answer is. I am not advocating for one way or another. I'm advocating for you being able to line up all the facts as, as you know them, as you can discover them through a little bit of research and maybe some math if you choose to do it versus all, all the emotional stuff that is, is making you think of leaving and then comparing all those two in, in, you know, whatever manner you choose in order to come up with a decision. I think I even say maybe somewhere in my book, or maybe I said this to, to one of my readers one time, it's like, hey, write it down as well, right? You know, once, once you go through, as you're going through the decision, write it all down, because maybe in a couple of years, you forget all these things, or you forget some of it, and you start questioning, hey, why, why did I do that? It's all there for you, right? If, if you write it down. So that's my approach to this book is like, hey, I had good reasons for leaving. I had good reasons for staying. In general, some pensions are worth more than others from a completely objective perspective. But again, everybody has to make this kind of this values-based decision of whether or not staying for that valuable, less valuable, or unvaluable pension is worth it. And unfortunately, for many people, a lot of that decision comes down to healthcare. In many ways, it's, it's you know the pension, the money that they would get is just an added effect. What they really need is is the healthcare pre in the United States at least pre Medicare. Obviously, the healthcare is not nearly as big of an issue as it is for my international readers who live in countries with a nationalized healthcare system. But for Americans, that part of the pension, because many pensions have healthcare attached to it, is just as important as the money that they would be getting paid in retirement. Yeah, one of the things that the book does a great job of is not just valuing the dollar value of the money you're going to get from the pension, but also talking about all those added types of benefits like health care and life insurance. It gives you a real way of looking at those by the numbers to try to decide how that will affect your decision. Let's look at our population in the United States in general. How big an issue is this? How common are people facing these defined benefit plan type decisions? That's a great question. So I am currently in a master's program right now that allows me to kind of do some research on that subject. So I've done some recently. And it turns out in the United States alone, between both the corporate side and the public side, there are over 32 million workers actively working for pensions wow. in the United States today. Wow. Uh, That's a lot. Which it is. It is because everybody thinks pensions are dead and they are dying. Like, you know, I, I said earlier, Hey, only 13% of the U S workforce on the corporate side is even covered by pensions anymore. But it, it does give you a perspective on just how big the U S workforce is for one. But, but it also gives you an understanding of these pensions, these plans aren't going away anytime soon completely. Right. So 1% of that, even if 1% of those people, which I think would be extremely conservative, going through 
that decision cycle, you're still talking about millions of people. You know, 0.1% is still hundreds, thousands of people. So I don't have great statistics on just how many come to this stay or leave decision, this worth versus worth it decision, or just how many people just kind of automatically assume they need to stick around for it, or just they're so unhappy that they just leave without, without making the decision. But I think anecdotally, you know, from, from doing this, from writing this book, from running the blog, I also run a Facebook group. We have over a thousand members, you know, many of which have been through the same exact thing or going through the same exact thing. So I think you're talking about millions of people, which probably have had to come to terms with this exact same issue is, is, you know, working at this job any longer in a situation that makes me either unhappy or might be bad for my health or any a number of reasons, is it worth sticking around for this pension? So yeah, that's the only way I can answer is a little bit on a statistical basis, just based on the sheer size and in the US at least of, of the pensionable workforce. All right. So let's get to the good part. You did gut it out, so to speak, using your words and decided to collect your pension and stay those extra few years. Tell me what life as a pensioner is like. The stability and the security of having that monthly check, I, I have learned through the COVID-19 pandemic, is, is, is unbelievable, right? So it, it gives the person who relies on it uh, a great sense of, of financial security. So I think from that perspective, I was not disappointed at all based on my decision. On the other side of that, as I've already mentioned, I'm in a master's program right now. Granted, my wife and I, we chose to complicate our life a little bit, more than just a little bit, by moving to New Zealand after we retired. The pension certainly helps to enable all that to happen, but it doesn't help mitigate the stress of kind of what's going, what other stuff is going on in your life. The healthcare, it's, it's good to have that. Certainly someone who has as many medical, both mental and physical issues as I have after a 20-year career, certainly in the medical aspect of that pension or, or vesting in, in the plan helps a lot to ease, you know, again, the post-retirement anxiety and things like that. So I would say overall, generally, like all both on the, the positive side and the negative side, kind of all, all my conclusions or assumptions that I use to make my retirement decision, they've all pretty much been validated. So I enjoy the security. It's great having monthly, monthly payments for not doing anything on the one hand, and it has enabled us to do the things that we want to do. We're in the process of doing right now in, in a financially secure way. But it's not a panacea, and I wouldn't want anybody to think that it is, because it's not, especially if you had to go through a decision cycle like mine, which was associated with healthcare, health issues, not healthcare, but health issues like I was facing, or, or maybe, you know, you're facing out there. You know, my physical health is, is a daily battle. I left the military with multiple active medical issues. And those are medical issues that only occurred kind of later in my career. So it's great. I'm happy. But at the same time, I'm dealing with the daily effect of my decision, what is now probably about four years ago, to stick it out. 
any surprises post-retirement? Well, in recent memory, my, my memory is so affected by everything going on with the COVID-19 pandemic that certainly, you know, was a big surprise for everyone. That hasn't necessarily altered our plan very much, but we chose a rather complicated plan to begin with, which was moving to New Zealand, you know, studying over here. That was our, our visa entry method into the country. You know, we also intend to make a life here and try and obtain permanent residency. So that's, you know, the COVID-19 issue has put a lot of that into play, right? So even with a pension, even with all the associated security that I just talked about, it is not straightforward as to what we're going to be able to do as far as staying here in New Zealand goes. So again, it can't solve everything. You know, a pension can't give you a visa in the country you want to live in necessarily. So I think from a surprise point of view, that is one of them is like, Hey, the, the pension and the money rolling in can't do everything. You know, there are still other parts of life you have to kind of take care of. The other issue is just how much time and effort I've spent just being able to try and maintain my health. And Doug, Doug Norman, again, kind of told me this is going to happen, right? Your first year in retirement, you're going to slowly adjust, catch up on your sleep, kind of get out of uh, the stress cycle that you're in to the point where you start to realize, like, how did I ever do that? And, and more importantly, why did I ever do that? And I went through that very thing. It wasn't a surprise because Doug had kind of warned me it was going to happen, but it's surprising nonetheless to find out that that my body was so impacted by that stressful environment. And, you know, if you think about it, people who joined the military around the time that I did in the, in the very tail end of the 1990s, they've seen a lot. The nation technically, the U.S. has been at war for the longest time in its history. Technically, you know, with Afghanistan, you know, you throw Iraq, Libya, and some other places and hot spots and things that popped up over the years is that you're talking about for the people who chose to stick around for the pension, you're talking about a cohort of people who are also probably dealing with uh, a lot of physical and mental issues as well. Again, it wasn't a surprise that I was going to be dealing with these issues. It is a surprise, especially from the physical health side, just, just how much these issues still affect me. The book is The Golden Albatross. This is a decision framework for dealing with your potential defined benefit plan. Grumpus Maximus, tell us what is up next in your life and where can we find you on the internet? Well, you can find me on the internet at the website, grumpusmaximus.com. The, the name of the blog is The Golden Albatross, so you can just type that into your Google search bar. And what's up next? Uh, also, you can find me on Facebook uh, or even Twitter. I'm Maximus Grumpus on Twitter. I'm Grumpus Maximus on uh, Facebook. You know, I got a Facebook group called the Golden Albatross. If you want to join, please feel free to, to send a request. And then what, what's up next? Well, I already mentioned it. So we are here in New Zealand trying to live our retirement dream, but also searching for a way to get gain permanent residency. We think you know, all, all the reasons for us uh, retiring and moving to New Zealand are, are still valid. So we're still trying to make that happen and adjusting to life as it comes, especially in a post-COVID-19 pandemic world. 
So that's that's what's up next for us. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Grumpus Maximus. Thank you, too, for having me. That's a wrap. Do you remember coming out of college and looking for your first job? Always something that causes anxiety. I can't even imagine what it's like for young people today. This is a different world than when I left college. For one, we're in the midst of a pandemic and recession. For another, this is a completely different digital age. People are working remotely. They're starting their own digital businesses. And it really changes the outlook of young people today as they are leaving the education system and beginning their lives as professionals. Let's talk about that a little bit. So I'm real excited to introduce Vazul Heights. Vazul and I went to a Camp Financial Independence, Camp Fi together. At that time, I believe he was a junior in college. So it's really fun to go to these meetings, these personal finance meetings, and meet young people who are so far ahead of the rest of us because they are thinking about their finances before they even get to the workplace. That was a while back where I met him. I now am happy to bring him back on the show because we are going to talk about what it feels like to be graduating college in this strange time of a pandemic and recession, especially for people who are interested in entrepreneurship. We're going to get to that and much more. But first, Vazul, welcome. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. You know, I'm doing very well. Like you said, I'm graduate. This is my last semester here. And graduating in this time is unbelievably, I, I think it's almost better than the alternative because all of these companies that want to hire entrepreneurs, want to hire you know, new talent are hiring all online. And so, you know, we were talking just a moment ago about me traveling to Hungary in about a month and I, I'm able to get a job in Hungary. I'm able to get a job online in the US and still be in Hungary. And so it, it's kind of opened up all of these new opportunities through Zoom, through all these other online resources that wouldn't have been available a year ago. And so, you know, negative and positive, uh, this is more of the positive side of, of, of this time. It's an important conversation because although the virtual workspace was well developed before the pandemic, we weren't seeing all the businesses using it. In fact, it was very common that you would have to go to a conjoined workspace with the rest of the employees and leave your home and not have some of that freedom. Do you think we've moved forward? Is this a permanent change where many new jobs are going to be virtual only? I, I, I Honestly, I think we are. I mean, we live in a small town here and, and the real estate market is going crazy. Everyone from the Bay Area, I'm in California here, and everyone from the Bay Area is coming into our town because they can work from a farther distance. They can work you know, in a nice little cabin, in the trees, a nice area away from crowds. And companies, on the other hand, are realizing that you know, we don't have to spend hundreds or thousands and thousands of dollars a month on rent, this huge amount of office space. Instead, we can spend either a very low amount on each individual, have them set up a home workstation and, and function like that. The alternative, the downside is that collaboration I think becomes a lot harder. 
Um, I, I'm a guy that likes to work in teams, but I like to work in person. Everyone's accountable for being there. But when it's online, it's, it's just a little different. And so uh, th that's that's kind of the alternative that I see. The upside is that, you know, you can be anywhere. You can travel and continue to do work. Um, and and uh, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see what, what, what actually happens in these cities and all of these people effectively just moving out and getting some air. Now you have, are finishing up your senior year virtually. Is there any part of you that is missing this idea of having a collegial workspace where you will go and physically meet up with people? I mean, I'm thinking back to my visions of what working were for me when I was coming out of college. And I had this idea, maybe it came from a 1980s sitcom of what the workplace should look like. Do you think you'll miss being in the same room with people? You know, it's a very interesting question because I'm I'm not a hugely sentimental guy about college. Um, you know, last time uh, we spoke of, uh, last year, we talked about you know should I finish out my college years? A year and a half left, and yeah, I'm I'm finishing it out. I think it's the right move. Um, however, when it when it comes to to going down, walking across the the, the stage. I don't think I'll miss that. Um, I will miss the collaboration in teams, whether it's at the workplace or at school. You know, my my few buddies of mine who who are you know, entrepreneurship geeks, uh, I coined this term whiteboarding, where you know you and your friends get together, have a few whiteboards out, and you just start writing down ideas. You know, brainstorming, brain drain, all of this fun stuff, and it's really difficult to do online. I mean, we 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 tried whiteboarding the other week. I had a whiteboard here. He had a whiteboard in Connecticut. You know, we made it work, but it's just not the same. And so that aspect I will miss. Um, I, and I mean, that, that you know, it's, it's the pros and the cons. I miss that in-person interaction that you get with people being there, making sure everything, you know, is running smoothly as opposed to just slightly different atmosphere from being online. Now, people like you always have it interesting coming out of college because you are entrepreneurial. So there's always this question, do I go and work for someone else or do I start my own business? Do you feel like the pandemic has changed that calculus at all? For me, as in, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, a strange one because, you know, you can look through Indeed or all these other job listings and say, okay, you know, 40K a year entrepreneurship gig or, you know, 100 grand a year. You can work with someone and they'll bring you up as an entrepreneur. And the thing that always runs through my head is that they're still making money off me, right? They pay me a hundred grand. I'm providing more value than that hundred grand. So why wouldn't it make sense to work for myself, provide that additional value to me? Maybe I don't see, you know, those, those six or seven zeros at the end of my paycheck now, but over the long term, for me, it's a much better move. It just makes a lot more sense. How do you feel like your fellow graduates are looking at this recession? Do they feel like this is a horrible time to be graduating and that getting into the job market is going to be more difficult? Or are they more optimistic that, especially digitally, the options seem to have exploded? Uh, I think without a college degree, it's a little bit more challenging, especially now, because now students abroad and, and domestic have access to pretty much any job now. As opposed to, you know, they're a little bit biased based on where they work, their location is driven. And, and, and you know, if you work in New York, you kind of have to live in New York, right? You can't live in, on the on the West Coast. 
But now the 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 effectively the supply of workers has increased and it makes it a little bit more challenging if you don't have a college degree. Um, the, the, I think what a lot of my, my fellow peers are, are thinking coming out of this, I mean, a lot of them are getting jobs right off the bat. I mean, all these companies are hiring as fast as they can. They can afford to hire more people. They're not renting as much office space. Um, I don't think they're worried. I think they're more upset about not being able to finish their graduation, you know, uh, in person, they have to do it online. I think that's more of a uh, topic than, than getting a job after. Um, Cause at least based on what I've seen, almost all of my friends and, and, you know, people scrolling through Instagram or um, people that people that I know at college are, are getting jobs right, you know, right out of the gate. Interestingly enough, your generation, this generation coming out of college right now, is probably more prepared for the work, virtual workspace than any other generation. If I was looking to hire, I have to admit that I might be looking towards that younger generation for an open spot because they may deal with this virtual work environment much better. It's kind of what you guys grew up with, right? It's exactly, I mean, that's, that's exactly it. We are already so used to doing everything online, What you know, we don't necessarily call our friends as much as text, but communicating via Zoom, FaceTime, whatever the case is, it's more habitual. It's something that we've grown up with. We're used to, if there's a problem, the solution is a, a click away, um, as opposed to, you know, some of the, the, the teachers at my school are having a little bit difficulty with this big transition. So, Vizuel, the big question, when do you graduate and what are your immediate plans? Do you know what's going to happen that first week and month afterwards? So, I, I graduate this December. So I got another couple months left. And, you know, we were talking before about, you know, I, I've run some businesses in the past. Some have been successful, but I, I really dislike doing it. Some haven't been successful, but but I'm really passionate about it. I haven't found that, well, that perfect or beautiful combination where my passion meets either revenue potential or, you know, what it could be. So what I'm doing after college, at least right now, I'm just trying a lot of different things, doing, you know, working with different people, trying new businesses out, just seeing what's there, seeing where my passion takes me. Um, I go to Hungary in about a month. So that'll give my, my brain some stimulus to come up with new ideas and enjoy that aspect. Um, I'm trying several businesses online. Um, but right now, you know, talking to a few people who have a lot more experience than I do, uh, I'm not going to get a job right after college. I'm going to take a few months, half a year and travel, enjoy myself because this may be the only chance I get. Who knows how busy I'll be in the future. Um, and so take advantage of being young. This is the perfect example of why I think understanding personal finance and definitely understanding financial independence is important for young people, not because they're going to be financially independent anytime soon, but because they understand things like frugality, investing, college hacking, house hacking, all these tools, which give you the space even now before you've accrued a lot of money to make good, healthy decisions for yourself. So once you get that mindset, you're much more able to take the time and think what you really want your future to be. It gives you just a little bit of space. And I'm seeing that in a lot of people your age who are taking this pathway is that they're not rushing to make the big income. 
because they already have a good enough grasp on finance that they know that slow and steady, they will get to where they need to go. Might as well be happy and do something you like in the meantime. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I want to be doing things that I enjoy. You know, we only have a limited amount of time here. Why do I want to spend it doing things that I don't want to do or with people that I don't want to be around? I want to do something that's fun, that's constructive, that's compounding. And I, I, I don't want to wait till I'm 65 or you know 80 or whatever. I want to do it now. And if I can manage my time and money wisely, why wouldn't I want to do it now? And so that's kind of part of my mentality behind this. Well, Vazula, it's a very optimistic look at the future. And it's nice to hear that people coming out right now have tons of opportunities and that this virtual and digital workplace is really opening up for new graduates. I can't wait to see what you do. And congratulations on your upcoming graduation and best of luck in whichever direction your career takes you. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Cool. Did you get everything you need? I think so. Do you feel like you were able to talk about the book fully and get its, you know, the full weight of what it is out there? Obviously, we're not going to go into all the math. Um, yeah, right. But my no, plan th- was that people understood what it is. Yep. No, I think they sh- definitely should from our conversation. Uh, the only thing I missed was I want, I've been trying to thank, you know, Choose FI for taking the risk to, to publish the book um, because... <laughs> You know, not not many organizations, um, especially in the FI world, would take that chance on a on a book about pensions. I think it's an important book, and it's probably one of the very few step by step frameworks that can actually help someone make this decision. And you even said it. I've heard Doug say it. I've heard a lot of people say it. You know, you just don't know what to do. You don't know what you don't know. And yeah. like you said, everyone just thinks it's this black box. You know, you kind of put some number in that black box and then something gets spit out and it tells you what to do. And clearly yep. it's a much more personal as well as in-depth journey. And uh, your book does a great job of turning that into bite-sized pieces that someone could actually work through. And uh, that's valuable and that's important. So I think they were smart to take that quote-unquote risk on you and uh, – and uh, hope that it works out for all of you. It's It has dropped or is dropping? It's, it's dropped already. It has right? dropped. It dropped on dropped. 1st of July, yep. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.